Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And someday, we're going to run, and then we're going to change the name run? of this podcast. No, it's yes. Two Pastors, Take no, a Walk. No, actually, done, done. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out what is going to happen when I win this gratitude challenge. Oh, my. And so, <laughs> when the Grove wins... Because everything's a competition. So when we win at gratitude... I have to run. You have to run. We have to run. We become two pastors who take a take, run oh, and wow. make a podcast. Okay. We used to be two pastors who took a run yeah, 10 years like ago. 10 years ago. We were two pastors who took a run. <laughs> and then we quit because I got pregnant. And then, which was whatever, six years ago, my baby's five so I didn't want to run while I was pregnant. I just got old. And then we've just never started again. <laughs> you got pregnant. I got old. Mm-hmm. So, so listen. Grove, when we win the gratitude challenge, when we destroy, <laughs> for Jesus' can sake. You, can you put those two ideas together? Derida, gratitude derida and destroy. Destruction. Yes. Um, when we outcompete, Derida. When it comes to gratitude and our November worship series. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. Let the saints say that um, the bet that we're making is that Yolanda will have to run. So he hasn't come up with what I have to do, (laughs) but um, he will have to run. We'll have to run. Well, I am going to really encourage the folks at Derrida Church to uh, uh, email their gratitude points in because we have to win this. Mm-mm. It's a win-win. When I win, it's a win-win because we get to run again and you get to live longer. You can yes. live lo- a long time by walking. Walking is very healthy. Anyway, what's astonishing you, friend, <laughs> other than the fact that you're going to be running again? We'll see. Well, uh, Sunday, uh, you know, we usually have a time of fellowship, coffee hour, um, after worship, and a couple of weeks ago, one of our elders came to me and said, hey, you know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and I kind of want to plan something. And my immediate reflex was to say, no, don't do anything, just let it go, don't worry about it. And she insisted, she's like, I don't care what you say, we're going to do something. <laughs> I was like, okay. So Sunday after worship in the fellowship hall, the congregation... Um, really blessed me. Uh, They had um, one of my favorite treats, which this is why I need to run, Uh, mint chip ice cream with coffee ice cream. I love those two flavors together. And so they had... What? I know. It's a weird thing, but I love those two flavors together, mint chip and coffee. And if you put chocolate syrup on top, that is just the ultimate. But anyway, so there was... No, I feel like my punishment should be I have to eat that. Gross. <laughs> That's fantastic. You haven't lived until you've had those two things together. So it was just really sweet, very simple. And honestly, I did not realize my soul needed that. Right? I'm, I'm the, the, 
the way I experience myself is I'm not a person that needs a lot of verbal affirmation. I don't need a lot of pats on the back. Um, my, my love language isn't words of affirmation or um, whatever. So I, I, don't, I don't seek that. But in that moment, when the congregation, members of the congregation just took a little time to say, hey, we think you're doing a good job. Oh, so we nice. see that you're working really hard. That, it really blessed me. And it was like a glass of cool water on a hot day. It's like it just put wind in my sails. And although I wasn't seeking it, I needed it. Mm -hmm. um, it energized me. It, I felt, I felt seen. Yeah. Um, because so much of what I do is, um, it's just not seen. It's not, it's not yeah. um, uh, very public. And because we've had some folks leave the church recently, um, you know, I've been feeling, I've been feeling not, not depressed or down, but, um, and not even discouraged, but just, saying to myself, wow, this is a really hard season. This is really hard. This is really hard. Just keep going, keep going. But Sunday was a moment of, oh, I'm, I'm really here, one, because I feel called to this congregation, and number two, I, I love these people, and I feel their love, and I, I, I felt uh, a renewed connection in terms of my relationship with the congregation, and I shared with them that there is a congregation that you and I know about in this presbytery that has been seeking to be multi-ethnic, that called a pastor, an African-American pastor to a historically white congregation. And this church um, basically had this pastor as their employee and not as their pastor. And so I shared stories that is the kindest, most generous way that you can describe what happened well, I am, in that situation. I'm I'm trying to be um, I'm trying to highlight the folks at uh, Dorita Church, and uh, that that church will have to deal with its issues. Um, in, when I in, within my first six months, one woman named Sandra um, came to me, came to see me, and she just laid out what was going on in her life. And I had come from a situation, a church, in which, you know, I was their employee but not their pastor. And essentially, without saying it, she said, I want you to be my pastor. Yeah. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we had a funeral at the church, and family members came from, you know, different states, and they didn't know me. And um, one of the elders named Cindy introduced me to her family, and she's like, this is our pastor, we love him. Um, he's going to be leading the service. And she did it in such a way. Her attitude was, and if any of you knuckleheads have anything to say about our pastor, you have to deal with me. Right? It was it was really an affirmation of, like, this is my pastor. I, I don't know what, what you guys think. I really don't care. Um, so that part of my relationship with Derrida Church feels very, very solid. Well, it is such a beautiful honor when, I mean, because what you say, like there are a lot of churches where 
I mean, there's a lot of churches where pastors are like the dictator autocrat, mm-hmm. and that's just gross and unholy. And there's a lot of churches where the pastors are employees. They're like spiritual cruise directors, employees, you know, and that is sad and unhealthy and like such a myth. But, but when a church will let, wants and invites the, the pastor to pastor them, like, I mean, that is such a, um, it's a spiritual relationship and to be, it to be invited to be someone's pastor is just such a huge honor. And mm-hmm. you can serve as the minister of the church and not be someone's pastor, even yes. in that church, right? Yes, so like, absolutely. it's just a matter of someone coming and saying like, I'm inviting you into this role and it is such an honor. Um, and, and when it happens, it just is the most beautiful thing. And the people who are truly called, and we've talked about this before that in the Peace USA that we're a part of, I mean, there's so many things I can say about the Peace USA, and I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound unnecessarily harsh, but like people, uh, you know, kind of the catchphrase in the church, and it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of people are proud of it, and it's kind of true, is like we do things decently and in order. And in some ways, mm-hmm. it's created this culture of like, people, you know, we create church members instead of disciples of Jesus. Yes. And church members are supposed to know the right things and do the right things and behave in the right way. And it's all decent and in order. So like not embarrassing, not too much, not too little, be respectable, right? Like that's just kind of the culture, the shadow side of the culture of Presbyterianism, right? And we don't really encourage it to be a spiritual community and we don't encourage the end, you know, the end often in the PCUSA are the institutions and not um, making disciples or becoming disciples or being in a spiritual relationship with Jesus. And, you know, there might be some folks who are from an evangelical tradition who are listening to this and are like, that's pathetic and gross. And I mean, like, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. And also you're, you're, all all of our excrement stinks okay mm-hmm. like this is just what it looks like in our denomination and it's it's what we're i hope beginning to name and grieve and repent of and you know anyway i i think that a lot of times what happens in the PCUSA is people catch fire for Jesus and in our local congregations we don't know what to do with those people and so we send them to seminary because we think like, well, you're not typical like us, and th- we don't really have the resources in this local community to to feed you, so you must be a pastor. So that means we have a lot of people who are leaders in our denomination who are pastoring churches, but like they're not pastors because that's not their calling or their gifting or even their desire, right? And I'm not saying they're bad people and I'm not saying they don't love Jesus. I'm not saying they're not on fire for Jesus. I'm saying like the role of shepherding people's souls and helping them discover, you know, it's not even that they don't do some of that stuff. It's not that they're too good to do a funeral or two, like, but that's just not their main thing. And it's not what they want. It's not, you know, but I just think our denomination keeps sending people to seminary sometimes so that they will be leaders who will save the church and sometimes because they don't know what to do with them. But we just have a lot of people who are pastoring who don't 
want to pastor. And so, you know, I, I think when all I'm saying is like you and I, like we want to pastor. Like yes. I don't want to, <laughs> there's nothing else I want to do. And so when somebody lets you pastor them, like honors you by saying, I want you to be my pastor, like it is just. Because they don't have to. They don't have to. And you can't make them, right? Correct. And when people leave the church, like there have just been times when like people have left the church and I care about them and then something will happen in their life. And like, I want to reach out to them because, you know, you want to still pastor them and you have to check yourself and be like, Kate, you're not their pastor. Like they've told you that that's not, and you have to accept that. So no, you don't, don't do that. Like you have to respect it when people say, you might work for that church, but you're not my pastor. Yes. And that's fair, right? Like you can't force someone to be in that kind of relationship. So when the church does renew that and say essentially like, you know, I still choose you, like you're my pastor. Like mm -hmm. it just, it does just mean everything when what you're trying to do is not build an empire. Like when what you want to do is pastor, when people say, you know, I'm, you're a blessing in my life and thank you for being my pastor. And I want you to be like, it just is so, um, so, so beautiful and yeah. so powerful. And it was so a good day. Yeah. It was very encouraging. Well, and the astonishment part is like, you really are just like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is my life. Right. Like yeah. I can't believe yeah. Yeah. that this is, this is the relationship that we get to have and that God is in this. And you know, one of the things I said to the congregation during um, that reception was, you know, when um, you and I get together and I just have, <laughs> unfortunately, very few colleagues I can do this with, but we, we don't complain about our congregations. They are imperfect. They have many challenges, and yet we are honored right. to pastor them. And it is, it is a, it's a holy privilege that we get to do this work. Well, and I think, I mean, and the thing is, if you don't, if you don't like your congregation, and if you don't think that it's an honor to do the work, like if you feel entitled, like that's just then you're not a pastor. Like you might have the title, but like you can't because pastor. Well, you like, mentioned the denomination and I've heard so many um, times we lift up potential leaders because they're smart. Right? Yeah. Oh, so it's, they're just so smart. They must be a good pastor and intelligence is great. It's God honoring, but that is not the only uh, necessary gifting. No, but that's our, I mean, A, the particular kind of intelligence that is celebrated in the American elite educational system is what is kind of an idol in the PCUSA. And that's a, just something that we need to name, right? Like we just think that there's really only one kind of smart and that smart people are better than other people. And we think that smart people are closer to God than other people. And it's just, I mean, like, and I, whenever I say this all the time, like you can say a lot about the PCUSA and I clearly already have, but you can't call them stupid. So there's nothing biblical about that belief. It's just a prejudice. It's just an idol. And we're smart enough to know that it's not so. So, um, but I, 
I do just think that, you know, the reality is you can hold whatever title you want to and you can take a paycheck and you can accomplish tasks within a congregation and you can preach. Um, but that doesn't make you a pastor. And it's a really, it's a posture of the heart, right? So like people have to choose to, you know, choose you in that role and you have to choose back to say like, no, I, I want to be your pastor. Like I feel that it is an honor and a privilege and a responsibility on good days and on hard days to pastor this church. And you can't be mad or angry at the people you're pastoring because they need a pastor, right? Like you can't be mad at them for not knowing what it's your job to teach them. Like you can't be, I mean, like you just, I mean, it's like if you use the shepherding image, like a shepherd doesn't say like you stupid sheep, how come you keep letting yourselves get eaten by wool, right? Like, you know, like people there's, that's a, that's a whole thing. So I think a lot of times people don't understand that. Like if you don't want to be a pastor, then you're not, and I don't care what you, and, and you're, nobody's a pastor by accident. And so like we, and I think that's why our friendship is helpful is because, you know, we sort of hold one another accountable for the idea that this is, this is a gift. And if you don't want to pastor your church, you should stop taking their money. Mm. And if, if people like when a pastoral relationship is really holy it's where people can be vulnerable enough to say, hey, can you tell me the truth? And I can hear you because I know that you love me. And I know you're telling me the truth, not to use me or exploit me. And you're not like trying to, it's not trans, like you, you're telling me the truth because you love me. And so even when that truth is hard, I can hear it because I know you have what's best for me. And and so a pastor who who, you know, nobody can do that. Nobody can be vulnerable in that way if, if they know you don't like them or you look down on them or you despise them. So like our congregations are imperfect and like, you know, we are imperfect. And so just the um, grace of saying, I see you in your whole humanity and fullness. And I, and I still believe that the Lord is in you and the Lord is in this. And Mm -hmm. I don't need you to be perfect to be called. And that's just a real, like that mutual interdependency Mutual Which submission. is especially important and powerful in this season of you know going through this pandemic when so many congregations, both in our denomination and beyond, you know, people began to turn on one another, turn on the pastor, mm-hmm. pastor is angry with the congregation, just because everyone is so stressed in this hard mm-hmm. season. Well, and I think it's just important that there are so many like dominant cultural models of religious authority that we impose on the role of pastoring and they just don't, they're not real. They don't, they're not true. They don't belong. And so part of it is saying, I think a lot like people like very reasonably come into the congregation with a, with a wrong and unhealthy understanding of what a pastor is or should be. And, and part of it is just about like being resolute about saying, you know, that's not how we use power here that's not, we don't use people here. Um, we don't manipulate people here. Um, we don't exploit people here. And, and sometimes that can lead people like literally not to respect you as a leader. Right. Yes. I've had over the past three, four years, a number of people come to me, a number, um, four or so to say to me, Hey, you need to just be stronger and bolder in your leadership. You need to be harder. You need to, you know, really just take control and take authority and 
Uh, one person even told me that I needed to be like Jesus and turn over some tables. And yeah. I was like, well, you know, Jesus did that once <laughs> and his mm-hmm. entire, he did it one time. And not to the people in his community. Correct. To the people. Yeah. I mean, and I think like you can take it too far, right? Like Eugene Peterson, I think really helpfully talks about, you know, the danger of pastors becoming quivering masses of availability. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I think, you know, what you want to say to people is, look, I am. I am in control of my ministry. I am being strong. You cannot recognize my strength mm. because you can only see what the Lord has taught, what the world the has world. taught you yes. to see. Yes. So I have strength that you can't see, but that doesn't make me weak. And, you know, you know, the, the thing about, you know, pastoral, whatever, pastoral appreciation month that can make me a little uncomfortable is that like it's not the church's church members job to meet my emotional needs right that's and, what was making me a little right. uncomfortable but you know there is there is mutuality and interdependence mm-hmm. and expressing that not because it's october and we have to but because like this is authentically what we want to do i mean that's really really beautiful and sort of you know because you can't be a quivering massive availability and you can't be constantly like you know, licking your finger and sticking it up in the air and trying to figure out where the wind is blowing. Right. Mm-hmm. And also if you get to the point where you're like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and who cares what you think, or if you don't like it, leave, you know, that, that also is really, um, unfaithful. Like it's just a really unique role. And honestly, and, and this is where I'll throw seminaries under the bus. Like I just think, especially in the PCUSA, you know, most of the leadership in seminaries, they're not pastors. They're not. They've never been pastors. They don't, they never wanted to be pastors if they were. And so they're, they're like the deep critical thinking that we're doing about biblical texts and about theology. Like we're not doing it about what it means to be a pastor. Like people aren't thinking about it. And so, um, we are immature in our understanding and, um, you know, what I know is true. I've heard, um, what's his name who used to be at Myers Park Prez, who's now a consultant, Steve Eason. I heard him in Presbytery saying one time that his congregation, like he, I mean, he was celebrating them in a really beautiful way. I think on the occasion of his retirement, um, as he was talking about just like the, um, just energy and passion and, um, sincerity of his congregation. And he said, you know, like, I had to watch it as a pastor because if I talked about dog houses, there'd be like 18 in my office by the next morning. Right. Cause like people in, I do think like one of the beautiful things about the PCUSA is like, people are like, I'm here. Let me do right. Let me, you know, so I do feel like if we were thinking deeply theologically about what it means to be a pastor, we'd be better. And then our churches would be better. And like a lot of the frustration that I think among people who are, holding the title of pastor like they're mad at their churches and I just want to be like buddy like these are the people we've been forming as a denomination for 50 years like if the person who has shown up for worship every Sunday for the past 50 years is racist or homophobic or anti-islam or anti-immigrant or you know hateful or pro-gun or whatever it is that you don't like and they've been showing up to church for 50 years and they're an elder that like, I mean, pottery barn baby, like we did that. And you don't get to be like, 
get get out of here because now we're too good for you. Like, no, you made them. And so we need did to... Did you say Pottery Barn? I did. You break it, you bite. <laughs> These are our people. And we can't despise our people for being our yes. people. Yes. Which now, I'm not centering them either. Like, I'm not trying to make any more Presbyterians. I'm trying to make disciples of Jesus. Absolutely. And often, if I'm going to give a hard word to the congregation... I will say something like, and much of this is the fault of people like me. Correct. <laughs> because we have Which told is just you, true. We, yes. Like that's not a rhetorical move. That's Absolutely. the truth. It is true. It's true. For yes. Well, I mean, we can go on. I feel like we've said what we said. But I'm that's a beautiful moment, and I'm not surprised and glad. Because if if this transformation journey is so hard, um, and and without God it's impossible. And with God, it's hard, and God will redeem that pain. But it is hard, and we don't know what we're doing. And if we can love each other while we do it, and if we can like let go of shame and just say, you know, there are many things we're not in control of, but we can love each other. Like that is something we can attempt, and the attempt, yes. you know, well, is worth that. That makes all the difference. And the truth is, all of us as pastors carry some level of dysfunction and mm -hmm. neediness into the role. Mm -hmm. And so part of mine is this annoying voice in my head asking, am I enough? Am I doing enough? And Sunday I felt, yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm doing enough because I will, out of my neediness and dysfunction, just overwork, overdo it. And, um, yeah, Sunday was, um, a bit healing, I must say yeah. for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what do you, what's astonishing you? Well, it's interesting actually, cause we've, we've worked around to a seamless segue to what is astonishing me, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I love and am astonished by and nourished by and inspired by um the television series Ted Lasso. I just love it so much. It is not a show for children. Um but and I mean I'm I will try not to give spoilers. It is it's about a soccer club, a football club in Britain. Um I with don't an American coach. With an American coach. And I I do not like sports. I'm proudly anti-sport. I don't like, I don't, I don't care about any, anything, but I do like movies about sports because I do understand, even though I can't participate in it, but like, I do understand that kind of the point of sports is, you, you, I mean, well, it seems to me that what is, what makes them so valuable in people's lives is it's a way to sort of experience the, the depth of being human kind of in a safe space. So like you can work out you know, belonging, defeat, strength, weakness, you know, victory. I mean, all, like all, like the whole, what it means to be human is like right there, both in the game itself and in the athletes and in the fans and in the con, like the institutions built around them. Right. So I don't like sports, but I do enjoy like thinking about sports. Like I don't ever want to watch a game, but I'll like read an article about a game because I think like beyond the facts, like, the meaning that is imparted to what is happening on the field is interesting to me because it's about being human. So 
Anyway, I like, so it's about sports, but you don't have to like sports. In fact, the parts I dislike the most are like when they're actually playing a game because it just stresses me out so much. It's so stressful because the stakes are so high. But like the the show is so great to me um, because it's about community and it's about how a person can come into a community with a wholly different set of values and then show up with those values and even when they are not honored and even when those values are not understood when the person in humility and love can continue to walk in those values that's transformative and what happens is the you know it's a show about community building and it's also a show about i think an alternate vision for for men, like an anti-toxic masculinity show. So I mean, it's just really good. Like it really, really speaks to me. And I do think um, like people who are in communities and people who follow Jesus, I mean, like to me, uh, Ted Lasso, the main character is not, I mean, he's not Jesus, but he is someone from my perspective who is a Jesus follow. I mean, like is modeling what a Jesus follower should look like. Although Lord knows no one is associating the show with Christianity, which is just so revealing to me mm. about what terrible, terrible evangelists we are, right? Because here's this guy who shows up and he's like goofy and people think he's weird, but he's just unapologetically out for the good of everyone around him. And it and it is and it just like people just can't they can't understand it. And then all of a sudden they're finding this place where they can navigate what is hard about being human, which is, you know, there's betrayal and there's failure and there's pain and there's limits and there's death and there's, you know, and all, but if you have a community where people love you, those things are all real, but you can, you know, there's a thing to do with your pain other than pass it on. And I mean, it's just like, I just love it so much. And it, and it is, has this really, whatever, like idealized version of how that can be, um, like how, how a person can be a catalyst for transformation in a community. And it is an idealized version. And I think like we need stories like that to help us see like, yeah, these, these things that we do, not, not the actions themselves, but really our, our true spiritual posture towards other people. Like it, it really matters. Um, and it, it really is the only thing that can affect change. Um, and that we're so used to affecting change by threats and fear and, you know, punishment and reward. Like those are the only levers we know how to pull, pull as humans. And then here's this other way, which is the Jesus way. I mean, it's just, it's really, really good. And I just finished, we just finished watching the second series last night and the second season and I just it's so um beautiful and real and I just I mean I'm just sad that we're not making art like that and telling Mm. stories like that um and you know it's just sad to me that I think some of the most powerful um you know descriptions of the Jesus way are not coming (laughs) I mean like and I'm not mad that it's I'm not mad that it's coming from a secular place. Like, I think that's great. I'm just saying, like, why is the church, like, this is our story and we're not telling it. Instead, we're, like, speaking loudly about 
you know, what's wrong with everybody instead of, I mean, we talk about this a lot, like a sermon shouldn't be about what you're against. It should be this beautiful, compelling image about what we're for. Like we're for this way. Um, and we believe, you know, by the power of God that this way, which should lead to weakness and disgrace and despair actually leads to life. And that's what the, that's why the cross is our symbol because, Anyway, so I'm I'm astonished by it. I love it. I'm sad that it's over. It's clearly going to come back for a third season, so that makes me happy. And if you don't like it, I don't. I love you anyway. <laughs> well, I've seen a few episodes, and um, one of the things that strikes me about the Ted Lasso um, character, uh, you, you characterized him as goofy, and I would say yes. Um, and I would add to that, um, he has this... Um, he, a bit naive, uh, but filled with joy at the same time. Yeah, no, well. Wait, go ahead. Well, I don't think he is naive. I think people think he's naive hmm. because they think. And maybe I haven't seen enough. I mean, I think that's the category category people put on him because they say like, well, only someone who doesn't know about the world or doesn't know about other people or doesn't know about cause and effect could show up in this kind of way. But I think the reality is he's not naive. He's just decided this is who. This is who I'm going to be. And actually, in this season, they reveal part of his backstory that kind of explains, you know, why. Um, but he's not naive. And I say that as someone who constantly gets told that I'm naive. Like, in a, I mean, like, people, in fact, literally, 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 someone recently being kind to me, like, intending to encourage and affirm me wrote me an email and was like describing how they saw me and I receive it in the spirit with which it was sent, which was incredibly gracious and generous. And, and in this long list of adjectives, one of the adjectives is you're, you know, naive. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, I'm not. So in light of the show we're talking about, the Ted Lasso show, Perhaps what this person meant was that like this character, you show up in the world with a set of values and you live out your values in a way that runs counter to the majority. And so it might cause some to ask, does she really understand how the world works? Right. I mean, I think the reality is like they're just things as followers of Jesus that we do, not because we think they will, quote, work. Mm Mm-hmm but because we believe that this is how we bear witness to the Jesus way in the world. So, you know, you count the cost and you do it anyway. And unashamedly, um, because I'm not ashamed um, of the values of the kingdom of God, even when they're not understood, like whatever, like the ways of God are revealed to the fools of the world and they're hidden from the wise. And so, like call me foolish like i'm trying to be a fool mm. um because what is wise in this world is really shrewd and i i it leads to death so anyway <laughs> so what's what's astonishing i'm, I'm sorry no, just, what what are you thinking about well you're supposed to go first well i don't always have to go first but um well i i've been thinking i was going to talk about this last week a, 
last week they there was I think the Washington Post released a, a trove of began a series of investigative investigative articles about what has been called the Panama Pandora Papers. Um, a couple years ago, a, there was a release of what was called the Panama Papers. Um, this is the next iteration of those, and they're called Pandora Papers, and it is the largest um, investigatory journalism, journalistic um, endeavor ever that there was a leak of just, you know, hundreds and thousands of financial documents revealing what everybody knows and what we just have become, I think, numb and resigned to, or maybe honestly kind of seduced by this idea um, <laughs> that, oh, there's a, is there a bird inside? No. Okay. Um, that, that, you know, like if you, The Color of Law, which I have not yet read, but I am going to read, but like the premise, as I understand it, is that justice is a social construct, right? And people are like, no, it's not. Like stealing is stealing and we punish people who steal. And like we actually don't because the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers are not, it's not, there's nothing shocking. I mean, it's kind of shocking that they're not shocking, but the reason they're not shocking is because there's literally no news here. What they are revealing is how incredibly powerful and wealthy people do not pay taxes. They do not pay what they are legally obligated to pay because there are all kinds of complex legal strategies that say if you're really wealthy, you don't you don't have to pay the percentage of your earnings that other people have to pay. And you know, that's not everybody knows that. Like, yeah, like there's, you know, the rich get it. But I mean, I just think it's interesting how we are so comfortable with just seeding that, yeah, that's just the way it is. And I think the, one of the major takeaways from the Pandora papers is that it's not just the incredibly wealthy people, it's also lawmakers. So like the people yes. who are supposed to be holding the powerful and wealthy accountable are actually writing the laws and, you know, endorsing these maneuvers to keep these people from having to pay what other people have to pay. And, and then they are benefiting from the same things. And so that's why we have so many people who go into public office, sort of middle class, and then leave public office as multimillionaires, because like, you know, the fox is in charge of the hen house. And what I think is really important for people of faith is not to, like, you should be on, we should be outraged. I mean, like, we should have passion around this. And I think what really, not because, you know, not because eat the rich, like, not because the rich are worse than other people. And all, by the way, globally, as my friend Jaron said in church this Sunday, like we're the rich, right? So like, let's not let ourselves off the hook, but because, you know, we, we just are so, we so easily buy into a scheme when it feels like it benefits us. And I think a lot of it is we feel like, well, someday I might be rich like that and I don't want to pay, or I feel like I already pay enough or what, whatever. But what really the, the week that those papers came out, um, there was a story that caught my eye about a, um, 
a man who was caught on surveillance cameras at a local Walmart. He he came into the Walmart, and, and so so the local police department in his community had posted like pictures of him and said that and solicited the community's help like catching him and the cameras showed that he walked into the Walmart he had two small kids with him in a cart he came to the front of the Walmart and in his cart there were diapers and wipes he went to the self-checkout the first thing he tried a credit card it got rejected he tried a second card it got rejected he left the diapers and wipes, took the two children outside. Like there was someone, came back in alone, tried a third card and it was rejected and then just left the Walmart with the diapers and wipes. And the local police station was like, can you help us find this man? And it was kind of like a sarcastic, you know, sometimes police departments, I think, try to be funny to solicit the public's health about like help us patch. And like they didn't, they didn't use language like scum or whatever, but they were kind of mocking like, you know, this Mm -hmm. dumb thief, blah, blah, blah. And, And actually people, and it was the Washington Post wrote an article about it. People who were on their page were like, I don't want to catch him. I'll pay for his diapers, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is a person who is clearly trying to do the right thing. He's not trying to steal. He's trying to pay for it. But but like he's got two little kids and he needs to diaper, you know? And they were just saying like, I don't want to catch him and put him in jail. Like I don't want to put him into the system so that the state can pay $180 a day to house him in jail so that some for-profit prison company can make a profit off of that. Like let me pay for his diapers. And also like from Walmart, Walmart, which is a corporation whose business model only works because they pay people so little that they have to go on public assistance. And, you know, if they get any health care, it's from the government and they have food stamps, right? So this corporation, which is wildly successful and is making tons of money because it's built on the premise that they get workers who live in desperate poverty, but then you're going to like you know, and, and so the police department pushed back and they were like, look, the law is the law. If the P- Walmart wants to prosecute them, the, law is the, the law. law is the law. And if Walmart wants to prosecute this guy, we have to go because the law is the law and we can't be a society. And I'm like, but this is the point. The law is not the law because look at the Pandora papers. Look at the pond. Like no one cares. Like people do not care when rich people steal money. They don't care occasionally they'll care if a rich woman steals money. Occasionally they'll care if a black person who is rich steals money. But people do not care if powerful and rich people steal money. They just go like, well, like that's just gaming the system and that's not really unethical and that's not really something we need to punish. But if a poor black man comes into Walmart and tries and steals diapers, like that's just theft. And we like, what kind of society are we going to be if we don't take theft seriously, right? And all I'm saying is like this is crazy. Yeah, even in the church, we believe this myth, this lie that says you cannot hold wealthy people accountable because they are the job creators. And that, they're that the ones who is, play by the rules. Yes. They're, and, bringing, they're not bringing the law. And if you hold them accountable, it's going to cost a lot of jobs, right? That's part of the big lie. Also, we fail to see that paying taxes is part of, well, it, there, there's a moral issue here. The, the Paying taxes is part of this um, um, social contract that says we are in this together, and this is one way we care for one another, right? We, we, we pay taxes 
for the common good. And even Jesus paid taxes. Like specifically. Give to Caesar. Caesar. What is Caesar's? Which I mean, like there's a subversive element to that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. There is. And there and we should know that. And also, Jesus Jesus didn't say give to Caesar what is Caesar's and everything belongs to God, so Caesar doesn't get anything, so I'm not paying. He paid his taxes. Mm -hmm. And so like we need to sit with like what does that mean? Because I think in so often in the Christian church, we just want this binary of like well, the government is always in charge when it's on my side and everyone should get in line even when, or no, there should be no, you know, institutional, bureaucratic, social construct at all. And like, it's just more nuanced than that in scripture and in the witness of Jesus. So I just, I think that it's really crazy that as people of faith, we can't pay attention to our own bias and the way that our concept of justice and God's concept of justice is just, there's an ocean in between them. And we just want this petty, small um, concept of justice that that benefits the status quo. Um, and God wants oceans, rivers of justice. And this is not the same. But I mean, no matter what you think about what should happen to the man who stole diapers, which, I mean, I should say, no matter what you think about that, there's something I want to come back to. I I think that we have to be outraged that we live in a place where a corporation can steal millions of dollars from the common good and then want to prosecute a, a person living in poverty. And at the same time say, there's no money. To, to help. There's no money for childcare. There's, no There's no money for housing. There's no There's money, no money for healthcare. No we don't money. have money for any of that. What? I mean, universal health care? Oh, who can afford that? There's no money for that. Right. And I think this is part of what the church has to be truth tellers about saying, like, I'm Paul Farmer, who I really like. And talks about, you know, when people say like, well, there's no money to treat drug resistant tuberculosis in Haiti, you know, that's just not cost effective. And he's like, no, no, no. A body in Haiti responds to therapy in the same way that a body in America responds to therapy. So you can't say it is a lie. It's, and he calls it spiritual anesthesia. It is a lie that there's no money to treat drug resistant tuberculosis in developing world. There's a three, I want to say it's billion, a $3 billion industry selling Halloween costumes to pets. You can't say there's no money. There is money, right? You can't say there's no money for universal health care. Look at the money that we have spent prosecuting a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Like, you can't say there's no money. We tell ourselves that so that we don't have to feel the pain of our moral choices. Yeah, what we lack is will. Right. What we have is a morality that does that wants to punish um, and wants to protect and does not like our, our whole culture is organized around the central principle of nobody should get what they don't deserve. Right. Which is why there's a different set of rules for people who are wealthy, because we think that they are ontologically more deserving. That's the central principle of American Western empire culture. And I'll just say like a three-year-old can see that it is antithetical to the organizing principle of Christianity, which is God of all creation coming down, 
pouring out his life for the sake of sinners. So you just got to pick, but you can't say like the way things are is just, eh, it's the way things are. And as we're Christians, like it's really just about being happy and like rising to the top of our MLM. Like that's not the organizing principle of Christianity. So we live here and we don't have to hate it here and we can love people here, but we just need to tell the truth that this is really egregiously broken and wrong and God is doing a new thing that is going to be a grand reversal and we need to love what is passing away less and long for what the world says is impossible more because it's coming. Yeah, and you alluded to this earlier and often we do not tell the truth because the truth is we benefit Mm-hmm. from that system. We may not be at the top of the pyramid, but we're somewhere in the middle where we benefit. We're certainly not at the bottom of it. And so um, yeah. in many ways, the American church doesn't want to change the system because we benefit. We are the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross, mm. mocking Jesus and casting lots for his cloak, right? Like we know that we're not Caesar and we're not the emperor and we're not the people with fabulous wealth, but we believe the lie they're telling us, which is it's better to be a citizen of the empire than a citizen on the outside. And you're different and you're better. And so you're lucky to be here. So do what we say. And we just believe the lie of the empire that they are keeping us safe and they are giving us peace. And we need to like cut off parts of our souls in tribute to keep the, and that's what we're doing. So, I mean, like I don't, I don't hate America. I love this nation because it is the place where God has put me and because every nation on earth is God's favored and anointed and chosen. And so I you know there's no we're not the best or the worst, but but humanity is just deeply 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 sinful and it's not humanity out there in those other places. It's here. It's us. Mm-hmm. And there's this human principle of like, we can see the sin and the brokenness, say, in a country like Syria or Afghanistan and the way that women are treated or the way, you know, the anti black sentiment in um, China. Like, we can see it so clearly other places. We cannot see the log in our own eye. We just can't. And so we need to be in real, trusting, vulnerable relationships with others or else we'll always be blind. Um, so that's what I'm thinking yeah, about. Side note, every time you say empire secretly in the back of my head, I hear the Star Wars theme when, whenever the, 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 the empire. Dun, dun, yep. dun, 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 dun. Oh, I'm so I, embarrassed that I just admitted that I know that. Oh. You just did that. Yeah. I just totally yeah. myself. Yeah. That's, that's so staying shameful. in this podcast. I'm so that's staying in the podcast. <laughs> But secretly, that I, I hear that empire music. Yeah, well, I mean, it is... I mean, again, stories tell us the truth mm-hmm. more often than other places do. And mm-hmm. like, ugh, ugh. I mean, this is like, I think a preacher should never mention like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, <laughs> Star Trek, like whatever the other, you know, like just tropes of things that people... But I mean, like, they are myths that help us understand the revelation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They are. Mm-hmm. Also, um, the, the Narnia. It's all, like, all yes. these things. Yes, just, like, stop. yes. Preach the Bible! <laughs> but yes, that can help you understand the Bible. Anyway, what are you thinking about? 
Well, I am thinking about NFL coach um, John Gruden um, of the Las Vegas Raiders, who resigned recently for um, uh, because of a series of of racist and homophobic emails. And uh, it's very interesting uh, that um, you know someone asked the question, you know, who was he sending these emails to? Right? He's having a conversation uh, that's that's racist and homophobic. He's talking to someone, and it's been revealed that let's see, one was the CEO of the restaurant tr- chain Hooters. Um, what? Another what? Was, I know I can't it's, it's it. hard to believe. Yes, I, that's a shocking to yes, me. Yes, it, it is totally huh. shocking, and huh. um, I, I forget the others. And you go, huh? Okay, and so at a time when the National Football League is trying to change not only its image, but it seems to be wanting to change some things systemically, you have those behind closed doors. Um, mocking those efforts and doing the exact opposite of of what the NFL is seeking to do. And, you know, Grudem, in one email, he was mocking um, some um, black leader in the NFL no, saying... The Players Association. The Players, of, uh, Players Association, that's right. See, I told you, I don't want to watch the games, yeah, but, but you, I will read about know, them. You know, you know, you know. You're, you're all in it. Don't, don't try to... Uh, hide the fact that you love the NFL. Um, but he said, you know, his his lips were the size of Michelin tires and, I mean, just horrible things. And so he's resigned. And uh, in a press conference recently, he said, you know, he's proud of everything he's done. And um, uh, he just doesn't want to talk about this anymore. No, he said, I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what... I know this because you told me before we started podcasting. You said, he said... I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I've done. I don't have a racist bone in my yeah, body. That's right. And no, I don't no. want to talk about this anymore. He did not say, here, here's how he put it. He didn't say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. He said, I don't have a racial bone in my body. And mm-hmm. I always find it interesting when people say that. But yeah, he says, I don't have a racial bone in my body. And I don't want to talk about this anymore. I was like, well, how 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 lovely that you privileged. get to choose. Yes, how privileged that you don't get to you 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 get to decide that you don't want to talk about this anymore. And well, it's making him uncomfortable. Well, oh, know. I my heart breaks that You're he is him uncomfortable. Mm. And like yes. people shouldn't be so sensitive about all those things he said. Like I don't know why they have to be so sensitive. Like they should toughen up. But the conversation's making him uncomfortable. Yes, and you know it does reveal that at some level, um, there are people, um, white people in this land, who think, you know, when they're angry, because he, he was angry at this um, head of the Players Association. He's angry it, about the concessions that were made to allow people to protest correct. during the national anthem. Correct, He's and angry. so. There, there are folks who feel like in their anger, they have the right, they have the, whatever, to um, not only express their anger, but express their anger in racist, homophobic ways. And, and it doesn't be, count. Because they are angry, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they are racist. It just means, oh, I, in the moment I was angry, but if I wasn't angry, I wouldn't have said those things. I'm like, oh, okay, well then, oh, all right, well then it doesn't count. Well, I mean... I just think that 
it is what, look, our words are revelatory. And they matter. Well, they matter, they have power, and they're revelatory. And sometimes, you know, there's literally law codes about excited, you know, like you can't hearsay, like you can't testify as to what you heard someone else say, but there's an exception. I mean, I'm saying this like I know it as opposed to like I learned it watching Law and Order. <laughs> Sorry, you'd be totally wrong. Ryan Rich, I know you're listening, so you can pipe in and tell me that I'm full of it. But like this idea that like excited speech, like there are some things that people say in in moments of extreme fear, panic, anger, joy that is that is revelatory and and should be considered. I'm probably totally making that up. I, forget the law stuff. I'm just saying like what we say in extreme moments reveals what's in our hearts, sometimes even to ourselves, right? And so whether or not he sincerely believes himself not to be racist or whether he's just conceding to the fact that it's no longer okay to be openly racist, like, I don't know, because I don't know his heart. But what I do know is we all have racial bones in our body, even racist ones, because we live in a broken, sin-soaked web of demonic powers and principalities and we're affected by them. And the more we deny their effect upon us, the more deeply we are ensnared and, and the healing comes and admitting you have a problem in repentance. Yes. In, in, you know, like Seeking our renewal, friends in the, um, in AA recovery, groups, right. right. In, no, in recovery yeah. groups saying, I have a problem. I'm powerless it's, over this. It's bigger than me. I need help. Yes. I need forgiven. I need help. I need, yeah. Well, and the other thing I think is worth pointing out, it's really important to point out. And you enter into a lifelong struggle against it. And you claim as your identity that you are a person who's recovering for this. Yes. You will never be recovered. And if you, you relapse, what do you do? It, you go back. You start you're, over. You're not trash. Your life isn't over. You get to start over. Right. You, yes. Well, and I... I think it's just important to name, if we're talking about this, that as I understand it from reading about it, the the comments that he the comments that were first discovered were the comments that the racist comments that he made about the man who was the head of the players association. And when those comments came out, he got a slap on the wrist. Um, and then in the course of that investigation, they uncovered more comments that were homophobic and misogynistic. And that's when they said, okay, we're going to let you go. And, you know, some people think like, yeah, it was really, there were so much that it was, that's when he got let go. I think um, that the reality is, and this is what is meant by intersectionality, right? Like when he was saying things about black people, it wasn't okay, but it was tolerable. But when he started deriding people in other categories about their sexuality or about their gender, then all of a sudden it became untenable because people in those categories are also white. And so I just mm. think that in organizations where white people have power, there is just an authority. There's a willingness to look the other way um, about things that happen um, in in categories of people that to whom you don't belong. And and I you know, and this is one of the reasons, one of the ways that I understand what I celebrate, but what I understand what I celebrate about the um, change in our culture towards honor and acceptance. Um, 
of those who are gay, LGBTQIA+, um, you know, we can, we should marvel, like, gosh, we've really grown. We have really, you know, begun to do some of the work of repentance. We have begun to, you know, just even beyond, I think even those who read scripture in such a way that they have a very traditional understanding of marriage or human sexuality, um, which is a reasonable way to read scripture. Um, but even those folks really understand that to mock, threaten, deride, dehumanize, exclude, you know, that that's not okay. Regardless mm -hmm. of how you read scripture, that's just not justified. Um, and, and so people sort of notice like, well, why, like, isn't that amazing? Like how, how do we understand that we've made so much progress when it comes to the gay community and yet when it comes to issues of race or on this October 11th, indigenous people, like, you know, like why, why is the same progress not being made? Because white people are gay. Mm. It's because white people are gay. And so white people can see themselves in Matthew Shepard in a way that some white people will never be able to see themselves in George Floyd. And, and I think speaking as a white person, that that is the difference. Um, and I, I, I think as long as we're still talking about sports, I'll just mention that I got my, lots of sports today. I know weird. Um, I, I think it's notable that, um, you know, my husband is from Cleveland and so he's a huge Cleveland sports person and the baseball team in Cleveland has been called is, has been called the Indians for generations, and they had a really racist, just really racist symbol that they called Chief Wahoo, which, I mean, there's still things in my house that have that symbol on it. Um, and it just literally people in Cleveland love the Indians. They loved this symbol. They loved what it's like. They just... in, in their intent was honor, you know, like really. Um, and it just took so long for people to begin to hear indigenous people saying, this is doing harm to me. And don't tell me that you love me and you love my culture when I'm telling you this is harming me and you don't care. That's not love. That's not honor, right? It's like an you know, it's an, like an abuser telling his victim, I'm hit you because I love you so much. Like that's abuse, right? Mm -hmm. So if you love someone, then you care if you're causing them pain. It's, it is irrelevant whether or not you think your actions should or shouldn't cause them pain if they are the experts, right? And so I don't care if there are some native people who are not offended. If there are people who say, don't make me and my culture into a mascot, then if you are a person who says that you want to honor others, then you have to care. So, I mean, they are changing their name to the Guardians. I think it's great. I mean, there's still a lot of, you know, you know, people, white people are just sad that they have to give up the name and the association and the tradition. And I'm like, you know, I can identify with that because... I can identify with it. And also, it's just clear to me, as far as Christians go, if you're an American, you can have freedom of speech, If whatever. I mean, you do. But if you're a Christian, you don't have freedom of speech. You do not have the freedom to do 
violence and dehumanize people with your words. You just don't. You can tell the truth in a way that people, um, that causes people pain because sometimes we have to, um, but you, you can't mock and dehumanize and despise and de- just dehumanize people. So, and I think it's really interesting because sports just brings it all out. Yeah, it seems like uh, the church really needs to help um, white believers deal with guilt, yeah, loss, and shame. Mm-hmm. Well, and like I just, this is where I also just think like, oh gosh, we have so malformed the body of Christ because of all the people in the world mm-hmm. who should be able to hear the truth that they have messed up, believe it. Like, that's not new news to us. The foundational principle is I am a sinner and I am in need of forgiveness and redemption. And the road to that is repentance. That's like move 1A of of Jesus. And, and the fact that we are offended when the truth shows us our true nature just shows, shows me how deeply the church has become idolatrous. Mm-hmm. And that I do feel like we just need to apologize. Because it seems the worst thing you could make someone think or feel about themselves is that somehow they're not as good as they think they are. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing anyone can think is that they're not a good person. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, that, I mean... I get it, but the very first thing that the gospel tells you is you're not a good person. Yes. Like John the Baptist shows Repent. up and is like, you are not a good person. I'm not talking about the Romans. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the Babylonians. I'm talking, I'm talking about, about God's you. people. I'm yes. talking about you. Yes. You are a viper. You know Who mm-hmm. warned you to flee from the wrath yes. that is to come? Like You are not a good person, mm-hmm. and neither am I. And yet we are loved and redeemed by the most worthy one. Like, that's the truth. And if you think that you are worthy, you're standing outside of the realm of grace. Um, So, but a lot of us are, because a lot of us have believed the Americanized, domesticated empire version of Christianity, which says you are worthy, and the cross just gives you the freedom to do whatever you want without penalty or or Mm. consequence. Mm. I think that might lead us into what we're preaching this Sunday. And once again, we are preaching the same thing in this series on servant life. This week, it's the subversive power of a servant. And we're looking at that story in, is it 2 Kings? I should know. We should know know the text we're preaching. It's in Kings, okay? It's in Kings. I think it's 2 Kings. It's the story of um, the Syrian general Naaman who has uh, some kind of skin disease, and he has a servant who tells him that there's a prophet in Israel who uh, can heal him, and he travels to see the prophet Elisha, and he's told to dip into the Jordan River, and at first he refuses because he says, we have rivers back home that are many times better than that muddy Jordan River. And he has another servant who encourages him to... Um, trust the word of the prophet. I was trying to look it up, but I can't get it quickly enough. But um, uh, it's it's Elisha, not Elijah. Did I say I Elijah? I don't know, but on the walk over, we were talking about whether it was Elisha or Elijah, and it's Elisha. Um, well, and we should really get that. We're going to get it's only get that Tuesday before, before we preach Tuesday. on Sunday. On yes. <laughs> um, and I think what is tough about this 
sermon is, you know, we preached the parable of the talents last week and you can make a case that the proper translation in in that story is servant. Um, But when it comes to um, the the first um, person that you described, it's a little girl. We don't know her name. And she's not a servant. She's a slave. Yes. Um, she she was captured in battle. Um, and so she's she is a slave. Um, potentially the person who goes with Naaman to Israel could have been a servant, could have been a slave. We don't know. And then there's third um, in Elisha's house who I, I think probably was a servant um, and was a Hebrew. But I... You know, it's tough because we're, I mean, we're going to, you know, there's no place to go with the story except to the cross because we're talking about the choice, um, the, the, the power, which is subversive of us, of one who serves like Jesus serves is the power to do good to those who are your enemies, who are, um, you know, killing you. Like that's, that is the choice that Jesus makes, which is offensive, which is subversive and which ultimately, you know, breaks the system, which is, um, separating and alienating people from God. Right. And so, you know, the little girl who speaks up to offer, divine healing to Naaman like it's hard to know what to do with the story of an enslaved child seeking healing for her enslaver um and yet you know that is the vehicle through which healing and grace comes in the story and you can't really shave the edges off of that um but it's important to note that that's not god co-signing on the system of Correct. um you know enslaving people at all it's just that we uh, in the fallen world it's brutal um and people use power to um enslave and exploit and torture and kill one another and the revelation of scripture is that god doesn't hold god's self up and apart and away from that but enters into that to um, show a different way and the only way that breaks the cycle of violence and the little girl in that story is a is a forerunner of Jesus um, and which is why we don't know what to do with her and she confuses and offends us um, but that you know that's what's happening is she is choosing to do good not because you know she acknowledges that she was ontologically made to serve or that she, deserved to be taken away from her family or that what is happening to her is righteous or good or just because it isn't, but she um, is a vehicle of healing and grace to those who are undeserving. And then it's an open question. I I mean, well, and the story, the whole story, which we really can't go into, but like how Naaman is transformed by this experience of the unmerited goodness and favor of God, like it changes him and he becomes a follower of Yahweh, even as he enters back into, you know, so, so, I mean, like, I guess when this just occurs to me that, you know, in so much of scripture, what we find is the chosen people, um, being unfaithful to the covenant and to their identity, right? Because it's, 
you know, through you all people will be blessed. Mm -hmm. And what we see over and over again is that those who are powerful among the chosen people use their um, blessing for their own personal good and favor or whatever. And here's this little girl who keeps the covenant, right? Like through her, all nations, uh, one who is outside of the covenant is blessed because she understands the role of her chosenness and what God is doing through the chosen people, um, which is to set them apart for the sake of others. Um, but that, that power, you know, we just have to decide yeah, what we're wh- on. Do which, we want to win or do we want to end the game? And all of that points us to the cross, right? Correct. So what we see in Jesus is one who enters into the fallen world and transformed it, not by using the tools of the fallen world of violence and brutality and anger and exploitation, but to absorb um, all of those things in himself so that, so much so that the Roman soldier looks up at Jesus on the cross and says, truly, this is the son of God, just as Naaman experiences the healing and says, oh, there is no other other God God other than the God of Israel. And just as the tool of violence and death and execution becomes the tool of salvation and forgiveness and mercy. And again, like it's all one story. And so none of this should surprise us when we take seriously like God's response to the very first murder, that when Cain kills Abel, God doesn't come down and say, here I'm, you know, like Zeus and like, here's my hand and my foot, you know, you did this to my innocent Abel. And so now mm-hmm. you're going to sizzle in hell for, I mean, like, that's not what God does. God does not kill to end killing. Did God... you say sizzle? <laughs> People in the middle, let me hear you sizzle. <laughs> we need to end this right now. because Did you, you said sizzle. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening to us this week. If you want to hear Yolando and his messages and his giggling, you can uh, find out what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A pres.org. That's their website. You can find their worship services on their YouTube channel. You can worship with them at 1030 in your mask on Sunday mornings, and you can listen to old messages of Yolando's vintage. You can hear vintage Hinton. Vintage. Vintage wow. Hinton. I think you just called their... me old, but okay. <laughs> no, no, we'll I called go your with message is old. Your back catalog on the Podbean uh, uh, website. You can look for the Doretta Church podcast there. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our YouTube channel and watch like our service really glitched out last week during on Sunday the live stream was not working so mm-hmm. I think you probably can't find last Sunday's sermon you might be able to find the audio of it on the podcast which you can find the Grove Church podcast wherever you find podcasts because we are ubiquitous we are everywhere you want to be we're like American Express American or Express. Visa I don't know <laughs> which one it is um so thank you. Oh, and you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It's fun. You have to wear a mask over your nose or your mouth, and we'll fix our live stream. So if you don't want to wear a mask, stay home. Don't wear anything. We don't care. But uh, you can join us at 10 o'clock for worship. We should have ended this podcast five minutes ago. Yolando cannot talk because he's laughing so hard. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week.